that Buddhists don't talk. First of all, it's not true. The, the, the notion is that all Buddhists meditate, and number one, that's not true. Uh, that uh, as, as Dharma has come to the West, it came particularly in the form of contemplative retreats and teachers who benefited from studying those contemplative retreats so that we as uh, Westerners who didn't grow up with it learned it because we were looking for a contemplative retreat and subsequently learned Buddhism. But uh, most of Buddhist practice, if you think about it, is the practice of ethics or morality or cultivating uh, the, the Dalai Lama, when I heard him last year teaching, said there are two things that you need to have. You need to have a mind grounded in ethics and you need to have a, a mind full of an altruistic attitude. And I actually think that those are one thing. I don't think they're two things. I think that when the mind is uh, grounded in ethics, it's grounded in ethics because it's actually grounded in wisdom. And the wisdom is what brings about the altruistic attitude, which means turning the focus from inside of yourself and one's own particular life to the lives of all the people around us. So I particularly love it when we're in a big group of people and everybody is sitting quietly, 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 uh, practicing attentive listening. Uh, one might guess that Buddhists or people interested in Dharma don't talk, but as soon as you say to people, turn to the person next to you and say that what you have in mind, everybody has something to say. So it's always something that I enjoy very much, and it's part of the friend-raising that's going along with the fundraising. So, and here we have Cliff back again. Thank you for hanging in with me. This is a lot of stuff, and you're uh, just keep pulling more stuff out of me without even trying. So I, I apologize for tangents. But the first tangent I'm going to bring you to is the fact that because we had figured out how to send laptops around with attention tasks on them, and um, Colorado is further away than Spirit Rock, and Sylvia, uh, attending a Mind and Life Summer Institute, said, why don't we do something at Spirit Rock? And we more than took her up on it. This actually became a project we ran in 2009, looking at uh, effects of one month of Vipassana practice. And um, we were able to, you see a bunch of laptops, um, and turning them in on, this is our dining room at home. Uh, and then uh, we brought them uh, here and were able to, uh, at the beginning of the retreat, have uh, a sort of kit that uh, began on the first day of the retreat and the last day before breaking silence of a one-month Vipassana retreat. We used 24 laptops simultaneously so we could essentially collect an entire study in, 20, in, in four hours. We had participants turning their dorm rooms into the lab and we had a bunch of computer-based tasks. I'll tell you only about one of them. So here, you, we, did, we did this whole thing in silence. So you get to your room and there's a computer in a box and a little piece of foam core 
and you change your light bulb. We gave you this nice larger than usual table, not these tray tables, and uh, instructions for these kits. Here is Catherine McLean, you saw this picture earlier, doing the task in one of the rooms here. And the foam core goes in the window so that it blocks out all the light. And now we have laboratory standard conditions here at Spirit Rock. And um, here are in the council room with a bunch of laptops having been returned by the participants. And then we solicited through Wednesday morning class, Monday night class, community participants to come here and basically do the exact same thing as the control group. And um, we ran the response inhibition task that I just showed you the data for. So the control group came back one month after they first came, and there is no difference in their performance, which is a little lower overall than the uh, retreat group. But the retreat group, notice across the 32 minutes of the response inhibition task, their vigilance falls off to inhibit their responses, but not after the retreat. So this is an independent replication of the basic finding that I showed you from the Shamata project in a one-month Vipassana retreat. Data collected here. This will be a paper. This was funded by a Mind and Life uh, Varela grant um, to Tony Zanesco and Brandon King, graduate students in my laboratory. Interestingly, when we talk about practice, and we talk about repeatability, moment-to-moment, stability. We looked at the coefficient of variation of your reaction time. That is the ratio of the standard deviation, the, how variable your reaction times are, moment to, you know, trial to trial, by how fast you are. And it turns out that the retreat group before training and the control group, their variability sort of increases across the half hour. And remarkably, after a month of meditating, their reaction time variability is overall lower and more constant. The system, because I don't really know, it's not the person, it's the response to the environment eliciting a response from the body is more repeatable time to time after sitting. You can chew on that. So I don't have that much time, so I'm not going to tell you about our insane pipeline for analyzing EEG or the way we do very snazzy <coughs> removal of EEG artifact. If you're an EEG wonk, I'll be happy to go into details about this. But um, what we find is that uh, when you remove sources of muscle tension um, and eye movement and sensor noise, we reliably elicit a decrease in beta activity, which is linked to each person's individual alpha frequency over bilateral parietal uh, central regions in both retreat groups that doesn't happen in the control group. And that decrease in beta is again a signal of increased cortical activation. Beta, when you have to pay attention to a very faint tactile stimulus, beta goes down. We also see shifts in individual alpha frequency, which may be 
related, though there isn't a lot of work on this, to less effortful processing. These are data collected during mindfulness of breathing. <coughs> the individual alpha frequency change is related to how much people practice shamatha. We did this. So there is a relationship between the decrease in alpha frequency and how much people are meditating during the retreat. And the decreased beta was... Decreased beta is between pre to mid, but it's not related to how much they're meditating. This hopefully will be out in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience soon. It's under review. We took the break. Now I'm going to switch to emotion. And I got, what, 10 minutes or less? 10. Okay. So we could assume you're meditating, you're going to become calmer, less reactive. You may also become more aware of triggers to affect that are largely unconscious, but be able to intervene in the process so that you might notice the arising of a moment of anger, but you don't have to become a raging maniac. Or if you become a raging maniac, maybe you have ways to channel it in sensical and ethical choices so you don't hurt someone with speech, you punch a pillow, whatever. You could also have changes in the type of emotion that arises. What do I mean by type of emotion? We take a developmental approach. Three months is a lot of training for most of us, but you try getting a PhD in neuroscience in three months. Try playing the cello like Barbara in three months. It's really not that much. We expect decreased rejection emotions, anger, contempt, and disgust in response to the perception of human suffering. Often you see injury and you go, ugh. But you don't stay around long enough to feel what you do feel. Often we attenuate the empathic distress that we naturally feel. Because you activate the pain network when you see suffering. In its place, if you have decreased rejection emotions, we may have, if you hang around long enough to have the feeling, Increase sadness. And sadness could be this catalyst for the arising of compassion. That's kind of our theoretical framework, less moving away from suffering. So I'm going to give you some difficult-to-see pictures. These are images of loss, illness, starvation, and injury. And we're going to compare responses to threat. This is from the International Affective Picture Set, of which thousands of studies have been done. And you see a picture for about six seconds, and shortly after the picture comes on, there's a loud response in earphones, 100 dB, you make a startle response. The amplitude of the startle response is modulated by your emotional state. Here, after training, the retreatants, the retreat group, shows increased startle magnitude to images related to suffering. 
they do not show any change pre to post related to threat. The control group shows no change after three months related to suffering, and they're actually sensitized with respect to threat. If we look at cardiac deceleration, it's one of those measures I showed you about you know, happening when the virtual reality saw the slap, we see uh, increased cardiac deceleration relative to a decrease related to suffering between groups and a marginally decreased cardiac deceleration, less attentional engagement with the threatening images after the retreat. Just in terms of psychophysiology, this is a complicated image. I don't expect you to parse it. It's before. This is pre-training cardiac deceleration. What is nice and clear after is that the retreat group shows this increased potentiation to images of suffering, opposite pattern in the control group, and there's no difference between the control groups and the retreat group regarding the cardiac response to threat. Actually, no, I just said that wrong. Thank you for the query, whoever looked like. What are you saying? This is uh, training uh, threat and control. Th no, this is the threat. And this is, I was right, I was okay. I got thrown off. All right, we're going to pass this because we, in the interest of time, I could show it to you afterwards. We look at a very difficult to watch film clip where a guy is basically divorcing his wife on camera. He is officially called the asshole. And um, people have to rate how they think he would rate him feeling. And uh, we won't do that now. Point is, there's less physiological entrainment in the meditators. They can rate as accurately as the control group, but the control group's physiology is more activated in this task than the meditation group. And that was our prediction. So now, this was actually in here had you heard what this guy said, but you didn't, so we'll move right on. I'm going to show you a film. It's a two and a half minute film. It's not easy to watch. It's documentary film related to the Iraq war. And you're going to see this woman's facial expression as she watches what's on the left of the screen. and the fighting starts, you know, it's kind of like we're pumped up, motivated, ready to go. It's the ultimate rush. 
because you know you're going into the fight to begin with. And then you got a good song playing in the background, and uh, that's, that gets you real fired up, ready to do the job. You can hook your CD player up to the, two of the tank's internal communication to Charlie system. box. So that way when you put your helmet on, you can hear it through the helmet. This is the one we listen to the most. This is the one we try out when we kill the enemy. Johnny Poole at the body set the floor is just fitting for the job we were doing. Because we're not. Who's the enemy? This was a lot more real and true than just a video game. A lot of people thought it was just me. Oh, yeah, look through the site and shoot. No. A lot of this is face to face, and especially riding by after the, some of the, the bombs have worn off and seeing all the people on the side of the road bloated up and just all the smells around you. I mean, from the people lying dead, rotted, and it's, it's a lot more gruesome than you think. We called in with some artillery and some napalm and things like that. Some innocent women and children got hit. We met them on the road, and they had I mean, little girls with noses blowing off, and uh, and like husbands carrying their dead wives and things like that. That was extremely difficult to deal with because you're like, sh you know, shoot. So you see this after three months of practicing the four measurables. We present a storyboard where we ask you to say what you felt when your emotions changed during the film. And we give you a checklist of 13 different emotion terms. When you do that, interestingly, in red here, in the early scenes, the retreat group shows more amusement. They're kind of right with what's happening. When the soldiers start talking about getting pumped up, ready to do the job, they show this significant increase in embarrassment. Both groups show an increase in contempt until the physical injury, the casualties are being shown, and the retreat group significantly drops off. It was interesting because when the Dalai Lama saw, I was able to show this film to him in Dharamsala, and everybody else is kind of reeling, and he's right there. And he says, you know, you need to have the most compassion for the soldiers, because they're creating this own cycle of karma. And it's kind of a very deep thing to see their bravado is their own defense. And it's not personal. So how do we look at this more quantitatively? Paul Ekman was here. He's the father of the facial action coding system with Wally Friesen. The quant definitive quantitative analysis of facial expression changes. I'm going to show you 12 seconds of this woman. And I'll show you what becomes of it. What you just saw turns into all of these numbers. 
have two graduate students and Erica Rosenberg, who is a leader on this thread of work, coding every single video frame, the position of all 44 muscle groups of the face, when their contraction starts, when the peak of the contraction is, how big the contraction is, and we can take this spatiotemporal database of facial action and subject it to a emotion dictionary where we can make statements about what we hypothesize are the feeling states that underlie these expressions. We have a film at the beginning. I won't subject you to it. It's a scene from Crash that is very devastating. And we ask, what are the differences between the groups before versus after? We first hypothesize there'd be more sadness. So this is a graph that shows there is no significant difference between retreatants and control subjects at the beginning of the retreat in terms of sadness. This is the percent of subjects showing expressions from the upper configuration of the face of sadness. There is a significant greater proportion of subjects showing sadness in the retreatants than the control group on the film you saw. This is what we predicted. This is a way that we analyze it using what's called a Poisson distribution, which gives us two kinds of information. The probability that the groups are going to have any response at all, and then if they do, what is their average number of expressions? There's no difference between the groups on sadness at the beginning. There is no difference in the number of expressions after, and this is a significant increased probability that retreatants show expressions of sadness. What about rejection? There's, because of the scale here, there's no difference between the groups on rejection emotion before the retreat. There is a significant decrease in the number of rejection expressions after the retreat. This is what we predicted. We're just writing this up now for publication. The amount of equanimity you practice is inversely related to the frequency of rejection emotion following a rejection emotion. The total duration of contempt expressions, these are AUs or action units, and the frequency of wincing pain expressions. This defensive responding to the perception of suffering is decreased with increased practice of equanimity. At post-test and not pre-test, sympathy that was self-reported in retreatants relates to sadness expressions, but not in the control group. increased access to experience. Interestingly, <coughs> sadness doesn't relate to sadness expression, self-reported sadness. Sympathy is a term that includes the connotation of the other as well. Now, I'm kind of out of time. So, this is actually a good place 
to end. Because I think what we've demonstrated is that this kind of training actually can change the way one holds one's relationship to the conditions of life. And I think that's very hopeful. So um, I can talk to you more about qualitative data and methodological issues at the end, but I want to be sure there's enough time for spaciousness in the rest of the day. So thank you. Thank you. I've been thinking... Um, I was thinking that uh, I was remembering that when I began practicing meditation, this is in the 1970s, and really didn't know very much about it, and really, uh, as much as anything, began to practice because everybody else was, then uh, actually had some clear idea of where I was going with it. I had uh, a number of misguided notions about what it would do for me, and certainly a number of misguided worries, or worries that had no foundation. And one, I wanted to be less nervous. I, I loved your uh, Cliff's uh, uh, use of the word neuroticism more. Um, but I, I wanted to be less alarmed about things. But I was afraid that uh, that with meditation, my emotion, my emotions would get flattened out. Like everything would be all right with me and that things would happen, and that I would just kind of float along on top of it, not being touched by what happened. And uh, I was afraid of that a little bit. So I was, it, w it was with um, a lot of pleasure that I began to discover, not so, not so long into practice, that the opposite is true, that my uh, uh, range of motion emotionally increased a lot, that I was less frightened of, um, uh, apparently, my, my, this is my addition to it, that I was less frightened of uh, both ends of the emotional spectrum, as if I couldn't pull them back together again, that I was more open to feeling deeply on all ends. And the other thing I thought about, which uh, uh, I'll just say before Barbara teaches some more, is that uh, one of my favorite things to have happen is at the end of a retreat of any significant length. But you know, surely when people are here even a week, uh, someone in the last question and answer period will normally ask, um, they'll say, uh, you know, as I've been here for this week and I've been able to relax and focus my attention, I'm I, I, I sense myself as being increasingly vulnerable. And I'm aware that when I go out into the world tomorrow, it's going to be full of people and noises and actions and newspapers and radio and television and, and news reports and stuff. And I'm afraid that I am uh, not up to it. They say, I'm afraid I'm, I'll be too vulnerable, which allows me to say my favorite thing, which is, I don't think there's any such thing as too vulnerable. I am waiting for us all to be so vulnerable that what's happening in the world that needs to be addressed will no longer be able to just pass our eyes or our mind and not have us respond to it, that we will be so vulnerable to the truth of suffering in the world that's unnecessary that a changed uh, attitude of the world could end 
that we would commit ourselves wholeheartedly to our own practice and to every kind of endeavor we could in the world to make things different. So I, it's kind of a setup when I wait for that question and, I, and I, I ponder it as if I'm thinking, but I'm actually not pondering at all because it's a very set response. I actually don't think we can become too vulnerable. I think we can become more responsive and I'm looking for that day. Okay, thank you. Well, when we were planning this day, Sylvia had the brilliant idea of me playing a piece while people meditate. And um, so I'm going to play uh, a piece also by Bach, and it's not from one of the solo cello suites. It's actually a melody from one of his cantatas, Cantata 156. It's called Arioso. And I played a little bit of it earlier uh, during a demonstration, and several people asked me what piece it was. Uh, so it's a very, very beautiful melody that Bach wrote. And um, after I play it once through, we can talk about maybe you can either ask me some questions or talk about what your experience of hearing this movement is. Uh, it has a lot to do with expression, interpretation, and I won't tell you what the cantata is about because when, whenever uh, Bach or another composer writes music with words, we know very exactly and specifically what the composer had in mind conveying through his music because someone is singing the actual words he's trying to say. Um, so when I play it, it's a wordless melody. And you know, when it comes to expression and listening to music, there's no right or wrong. And whether or not you feel what Bach was intending really doesn't matter. The main thing is that you just open yourself up to what the music says to you. So that's my goal in playing, is to just have it be an experience of expression in however you feel about that. And then afterwards, uh, we can talk about what the cantata is about.
So would some of you like to share what that felt like to meditate through that arioso or ask questions? And then we can talk about uh, a little bit about box ideas. Yes, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Anybody else? Okay. Sorry? Like listening to the birds outside. Okay, the microphone's coming over here. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> I think. Really. At first, it was very like following the notes that someone said was there, but then I felt a lot of uh, compassionate kind of heart. My heart was. Great. Thank you. Oh, okay. Um, it right into it. it um, also went directly to my heart immediately when you started playing, and um, it felt very heavy. And it reminded me of um, probably the heaviest heart I've ever had was uh, visiting Auschwitz. And um, so I, I, I just felt tremendous sadness, uh, but compassion as well. So thank you for that. Thank you. There, there's some people down here. So. Okay. okay. Uh, for me, it was actually very interesting because uh, I stopped hearing the melody after a while and stopped paying so much attention to the individual notes, but I could really hear the transitions between the notes and kind of the scrape of the bow on the strings. I felt a tremendous amount of relief. I felt as though I were in a cradle, just swinging back and forth and feeling brain relief. And body relief was delicious. Yeah, it felt to me like a prayer, um, a prayer of longing, uh, longing to to rise up closer to to sort of the great unknown, to 
arise out of, come out of suffering. And uh, uh, I felt my heart just riding that and opening up with it. And then there was this marvelous sense of rest when it, when it came down to, to the finish. Okay, that, that's really beautiful. Now I, I have to tell you what uh, the cantata is about because you, you basically said it right there. Uh, Bach was an extremely religious man, and not just that he went to church and that he followed uh, Christianity. He, he deeply, deeply felt the, the, the hand of God throughout his life, and uh, he very much believed in the hereafter and the the Bible's idea about heaven and hell and redemption and um, religion and God in particular played a very important role in, in all of his music, uh, even in the secular music. And this particular cantata, which he wrote for one of the weeks, it's a particular, I think it's a third Sunday after Lent, I'm not sure exactly. Um, the, the words, the name of the cantata, I don't have it in the German, but the, the words say something like, I walk with one foot in the grave. And when I first started reading the uh, meaning of the cantata, I thought, well, gee, I don't feel that in the music at all. It feels, it, but the more I thought about line by line what he talks about when this particular cantata, I believe it's, a, it's from a, a German poet, and it's, uh, it has to do with the peace. It's a person speaking who is, is very close to the end of his life, and there's an acceptance and a peace and a looking to God. Um, if I have lived well, then you welcome me into heaven, and I will feel ready to enter your house, basically, is what he's saying. And so, just a little bit about my own interpretation, how, how um, knowing that affects some of the very fine little details of what I might be doing. Um, for instance, at the very end, he suddenly goes to a lower string, and you've been playing up high, and then at the very end, he goes down to one of our lower notes. So, and so it's a little bit, uh, as you were saying, kind of the, the petering out of life and the resting in the final moments here, the slowing down. Um, that one long, very, very long trill there at the end. Uh, it's almost like a person is really accepting that it's over, but accepting it with a kind of a, a, a sad joyfulness, if there is such a thing. Um, and so when I think about that, I'm going to play just the first part of it again, now that you know what was in Bach's mind. Uh, at the end of each phrase, he has uh, a sort of a three-note pickup into the downbeat. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's, sometimes it's a, and sometimes it goes to a place of rest. So those three notes, that's a little bit for me, the, the questioning, where is Bach taking me? Is he taking me to a... Uh, a harmonically intense note? Is he taking me to a restful note? And I think that the key for me in this <laughs> movement is those pickup notes, the, 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 the sort of wondering where will you go, and then the resolution of where he takes you at, at the beginning of each bar, which leads up 
to the very end when he goes down lower and lower to our low open C string. So I'll just play um, the first section of it again. Now that you have a, a little bit of the idea of what I think about when I'm playing this piece. So we could take a few more questions if you have something that's come up that you'd like to ask me or Sylvia about, or, or Cliff as well. Go ahead. I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask um, entrainment um, with anything that vibrates, anything that's in its presence typically will entrain with it. And I know you have four strings, and at any one time you may be playing one or more. Is there a, a vibrational effect that for the listener is actually perceptible? that when you're say, playing just a single C note, your other, your other strings have to be vibrating and entrainment. Is there something that we're actually experiencing with those additional strings vibrating? Sort of an at-one-withness, even though they haven't been plucked or they're not being bowed, are they adding something with their vibration to what we experience? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's accurate. The, um, whenever I play a note that is the same note as an open string. For instance, if I play this G, you hear some other resonance going on at the same time, and some of it is the open G, which is it's actually vibrating, uh, which causes the instrument, the sounding box, to vibrate in a particular way. In a, in a Buddhist way, I think of it as, if, if indeed that's true, that we all entrain with one another, and that, that as, as we show up, as, as we are who we are, that, that there is a vibrational quality to how we show up in one another's lives and in each moment, and that that resonance has an effect, um, and that there's an at-one-withness amongst all those resonances. That's, that's a good and, analogy. Same thing think. shows up in music. Yeah. Thank you. I can actually add something to that. Um, I mentioned that um, the caregiver was sensitive to the child's change in the use of speech. The paper I referred to, uh, Hassan uh, in Trends in Cognitive Neuroscience, actually has a graph of two people talking, but it turns out that the cadence with which we speak modifies the brain activity of the listener, improving the signal-to-noise ratio and the attentional state of the person we're talking to optimizing their attending to us 
by the way we nod, what you're doing right now, actually is affecting my brain. So it doesn't have to be metaphoric or Buddhist. We actually, in that paper, is a graph of Granger causality equations going from somebody who's doing a uh, gesture to someone who is observing the gesture. And would you call that entrainment? Well, entrainment is one technical thing where you have things of given resonant frequency and they begin to oscillate at the same rate. But this is actually a causal transaction that is causing a system to have a kind of functional uh, reciprocity. And I don't want to say unity. And I don't want to just say resonance, because we have language baggage from New Age thinking at some level. Then we have a very interesting sort of technical explanations for things we're not conscious of that we then ascribe to language like resonance and entrainment. But there is a whole study of how music causes brain rhythm changes. Peter Janata at our center studies entrainment, and he has actually a drum circle research project called the Groove Project, where he's quantitatively looking at brain state shared similarity by rhythmic uh, co-participation. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I think a good number of us, in addition to sitting, have done chanting over the years. And I wonder if uh, anyone up there would be uh, pleased to comment on chanting and any either neurophysiological or musical relationships that tie in to what you've been talking about. Do you have anything? I So this makes me think of the Ramdas in the early 70s and Kirtan and uh, having altered states of uh, mind uh, in group uh, long chanting. There's no question that one uh, loses one's boundaries um, and this uh, experience of where am I uh, when you are co-creating and anticipating activity which you hear all reflected around you. I don't have a brain, ex- I don't think we need brain explanation. I was going to say, and maybe this is by way of beginning to finish, and Barbara will play some more in a minute, that um, the questions about what, what, uh, what's the word for um, uh, empathic attunement, or how, how are we going to say that way in which we, unbarred from constraints, can really uh, sense what somebody else might be feeling without backing off from it, without any kind of resistance. Uh, and I was thinking about the classic uh, definition in, uh, in uh, translations, of course, but in Buddhist uh, definitions of compassion that are way, way earlier than neuroscience, uh, where compassion is called the quivering of the heart in response to the awareness of distress. So I think that uh, the heart quivers when it... That's it, period. <laughs> Sometimes you don't need the extra sentence. And the part that everyone has intuited, could we but let down the boundaries of our hearts and let them quiver to... 
the sense of what's happening in this world, would we not all be completely devoted to the well-being of others and this earth that we're on, that to whatever, if we could but see, would we not completely uh, be resolved to drop anything that stands in the way of that? Sometimes at the end of being together, as such as we are today, we um, do a formal dedication of merit. We say something like, whatever merit we've accrued from being here together, we offer as um, freely as a gift to all beings everywhere. I actually think it isn't a question of saving up the merit and then giving the merit. I think every moment that we are together, every moment of practice, every moment of our my or your or our heart's orientation to all of us and this whole world is a moment of liberation from the smallness of the personal life, is a moment of uh, really changing the, um, the fabric of the world. And I, I used to really um, confound me a little bit to think of dedicating oneself to all beings. How could it all be? It was too big. Or how, how would you do that? I don't think it's about all the beings. I think it's the allness of this particular mind and heart that gets dedicated. And then it is all beings all the time. So... Often we uh, end and make that dedication of merit and uh, do the bell. But uh, a barber chose the jig from the bach. The sweet, yeah. Sweet. The jig from the bach sweet to uh, be the closing bell because, uh, well, just listen to it and you'll know why because. <laughs> So Bach uh, ended each of his six suites with a movement called Zig, which is uh, derived from a very uh, sort of a peasant dance, like a peasant jig. And uh, I mean, the reason that he picked that, and not just ba not just these suites, but many long, extensive pieces in the Baroque era end with a Zig, because that is just um, sort of the least sophisticated and most fun and exuberant movement of all the Baroque dances. And uh, one time at a music festival that specialized in Baroque music, we all had to learn Baroque dance every day, and which really helped a lot in terms of my understanding and interpretation of the pieces. And when they got to do the jig, everybody was so happy because we didn't have to worry about what steps or what our hands were doing. It's basically just hopping around the room, kind of da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da in a continuous pattern from left to right to left to right. So it's... it's uh, it's the most um, sort of heavy-footed, peasant-like dance of all the Baroque dances, and uh, it's fitting that uh, to send you out in a very upbeat mood. I'll end with uh, the jig from the first suite.
I am thanking you very much, Barbara. I'm thanking Cliff very much. I'm thanking you very much. I'm completely exhilarated, and I assume that you are too. In case you've uh, forgot earlier to join the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas, you might want to take care of that on your way out, or you might want to hold that very close to your heart if you haven't quite made that move. Uh, and we'll do other wonderful things together. Uh, everything good. And when you come out of the front, uh, and when you drive out of Spirit Rock, turn right. And if you are going to get CE units, you have to pick them up today. Otherwise, it'll be hard to get them. So thank you very, very much. <laughs>